and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, folks, today's guest is a newbie making his maiden appearance on the farm, but this is going to be a spectacular debut, I can assure you. Today's guest is an aspiring filmmaker and a jack of many other visual trades, but uh, for our purposes now, he is coming to us for his expertise in a peculiar research project that he has embarked upon, and which is also dear to my heart as well. Taylor Cohen, thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. I am beyond excited for this show. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to do one of these. All right, folks. As I said, this is going to be an epic show. It follows a topic I've been fascinated by for a number of years now and have been wanting to cover for some time. It's taken me a while to do the kind of research uh, I'd like to do to get into this kind of subject, but fortunately, today's guest spurred me to take a deep dive into it at long last. And what a subject! It's the suicides of Teresa Duncan and Jeremy Blake. While largely forgotten now, these deaths, which happened within a week of one another, became a major media sensation in 2007 and remained so for at least a few years afterwards. On the surface, they were worthy of a Shakespearean tragedy. An attractive couple, artists by trade, they had left a mark on the world of art, gaming, and film before either reached the age of 40. When they moved to California around 2000, the future seemed bright. Both were poised to make their mark in Hollywood. But as is often the case there, things didn't work out the way they had hoped for. Further, the couple became convinced their failures were driven by the Church of Scientology and possibly elements of the U.S. national security state as well. It seemed incredible. But then... Not long after relocating back to New York City uh, in the middle part of the first decade of the 21st century, both turned up dead within a week of one another in the summer of 2007. The budding blogosphere went wild. The suicides have been described as an event that inspired a thousand blogs. It really set the stage for later dramas that played out around the equally mysterious deaths of people like Alyssa Lamb and Gabby Petito in the social media era. Of course, back then, kids were founding blogs to go over the uh, Teresa Duncan, Jeremy Blake stuff. Now they just do those different uh, troll farms and what have you on Twitter. So it's become, I guess, a little more efficient uh, since those bygone days in 07. Again, this was the dawn of that era, which makes it interesting from a historical perspective alone. But beyond that, 
there is so much strange stuff about this case that is still unexplained. To say nothing of the reverberations of it still being felt today. So, Taylor and I are going to use an account of the incident as it was unfolding from one of the endless blogs that tracked it during that era. But there are a few things about this blog that make it stand out, among other things. It's going to be quite a long, strange journey, folks, so get ready. So, on that note, let us start the show. Okay, Taylor, is there anything you want to add about Teresa Duncan and or Jeremy Blake before we really get into this here blog? Yeah, I think um, just some quick background on both of their kind of mental state the year leading up to both of their suicides, where they had to go back to New York after um, supposedly alienating all of their friends in LA, accusing them of being Scientologists or prostitutes. And like, there's a neighbor who said that she was being harassed by Teresa in one of the articles about the case after. And she also had a famous perfume blog where she would write reviews of perfume. She would also talk about Kate Moss a lot and politics. And before her death, she accused one of Jeremy's ex-girlfriends of being a Project Monarch victim, which her making that post obviously led to some of the speculation forming initially after after she died. Yeah, for those of you unaware, she was actually one of the first people too to raise um, the possibility that Johnny Gosh, who is well known from the uh, now a lot of the mythos around Franklin, had survived his abduction back in the 1980s and had actually become a member of uh what the bush two white house or something like that and the um i'll talk yeah he was like a reporter in the bush white house or something yeah 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 uh, it was definitely some incredible stuff with that a few other things okay about Teresa duncan and jeremy blake here to jog the memories of some of you who didn't follow the case or uh maybe it was before your time so Teresa Duncan was initially a game designer. Her big one was Chop Suey, which I think came out around 1995. And then she also did uh, one called Smarty in 96 and another in 1997 called Zero Zero, the latter two of which she both did with Jeremy Blake. And then in uh, 1999, she did the hour-long animated film, The History of Glamour, which Blake also played a significant role in. And that's a really interesting work. I definitely would recommend everybody checking that out if you can. From there, this is around the time they decided to relocate to Hollywood. She believed that there was a good chance that she might be able to get a film made called allegedly Alice Underground. There were some speculation that Beck and then uh, possibly Tom Cruise might have had an interest in it which is possibly where the you know, the concern over Scientology originated from. We're not really sure. Obviously, this is speculative. But 
Anyway, as for her significant other, Jeremy Blake, he was a little younger than her. She was 40 at the time of her suicide. He was uh, 35. He was also a little more established by that point in time as well. He was a uh, successful artist in the NYC scene. He had a couple of his works in the Museum of Modern Art, at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. He had done images and worked on the video for Beck's Sea Change album. Interestingly, he also did the painted abstract interlude sequence in Paul Thomas Anderson's 2002 film Punch Trunk Love. Of course, uh, I recently had uh, Gigi Vance on here to go over and hear in Vice with me. And yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that paul thomas anderson has tackled in his films obviously the wonderland murders and a lot of that other stuff shows up in boogie nights again you have all the scientology stuff in the master and thomas pynchon i mean everything the guy wrote is like a conspiracy trope so yeah it goes without saying there's a lot of that inherent vice too so it's another interesting guy for him to kind of know in these scenes in uh, la Another thing about Blake that really jumped out to me was his initial series, I think, that got him a lot of uh, success, which was the Winchester series. It was inspired by the whole story of Sarah Winchester, who was the widow of the inventor of the Winchester rifle. Of course, she built the famous Winchester Mystery House in the San Francisco area. I had very much wanted to see that when I was in San Francisco this past year, but get around to it this time hopefully some point in the near future but yeah his obsession with the winchester house i thought was interesting and uh, he also did another fascinating display called all the pretty corpses uh with the renaissance society in 05 his artwork as you might imagine was very risque and it definitely has some airs to it, maybe something like Marina Abrakovich. So I've been trying to figure out if they knew one another. I haven't found anything definitive yet, but definitely they do appear to have had a few mutual friends at a minimum in the art scene. But certainly they do seem to have shared a lot of similar uh, sensibilities. And obviously the sort of gamemanship behind a lot of this too as we'll get into art as a kind of performance art type thing that's the basic story about them at the time of their suicides um another thing uh that i'll point out because in the aftermath of the media sensation that i thought was very interesting uh revolves around the brief time frame when there was discussion of doing a film adaptation of their story gus van zandt was supposedly going to direct it who was um the director by goodwill hunting a lot of other movies it was interesting to me that the guy was originally tapped to do the script was brett easton ellis and um, who is of course most well known for writing american psycho but in recent years, he's kind of ingrained himself in a lot of these fringe cultures as well. Of course, he wrote the script for the Smiley Man, a smiley face killer film. He's recently been doing um, some stuff uh, on the Zodiac. Uh, and of course, he basically did this whole performance art thing where he raised the possibility, I believe, where he had murdered one of his classmates when he was in college and so he was another really interesting guy connected to their suicides very early on back in the day and another individual who i have 
often wondered if he used some of these um, true crime events as a kind of performance art. So seeing him turn up here was definitely another kind of blinking red light in my mind. His last like art piece before he died that was unfinished was a portrait of Malcolm McLaren. So they both had a relationship with Malcolm McLaren. And it seemed like a friendly relationship considering the artist profile, but then there's also some things that lead me to believe that it was less than personable. Also, the final art piece that Jeremy was working on before he died was called Glitter Beast, and it was a portrait of Malcolm McLaren. Glitter Beast is the management company that Malcolm runs, and oddly enough, on the label is a band called The Real Tuesday Weld, which is funny and interesting and we'll connect more to later. So, Taylor, your interest in the Teresa Duncan, Jeremy Blake saga has focused a lot on this enigmatic little blog called the Duncan Blank Rumor Mill. It was only active for a very short period of time, a flurry of posts in the summer and fall of 2007, mainly the summer, specifically August and September, um, not long after the suicides occurred in July. Uh, and then two posts in 2008. From there, silence. Why did you become interested in this website in the first place? Certainly there are a lot of others left over from that era chronicling these events, but what was it about this one that made it stand out to you? Yeah, so I stumbled across the story when I was doing research on erotomanic stalkers, which is a type of stalker where you think the person you're stalking who you don't know is in love with you. And there is a famous example of that in this stalker, Jeffrey Turner, who stalked the 80s star Tiffany. And he also ended up stalking some other celebrities after that. There's been some restraining orders against him. There's a documentary about him called I Think We're Alone Now. In the documentary, he mentions something offhand about Freemasonry that got me um, more obsessed with them just because I, I thought that was him being a conspiracy theorist also was very funny to me. And I found that he was a guest on this Adam Go Rightly podcast where he was talking about Tuesday Weld and claimed that she was an Illuminati high priestess and that she was behind the 60s counterculture movement. And then I found it really interesting and absurd because it was Jeffrey Turner, but then started listening to other episodes of the Go Rightly podcast. That's when I heard the episode on Jeremy and Teresa and Punch Drunk Love was like the movie that I saw as a kid that made me want to make films in the first place. And then I started looking at the blog post that they mentioned on the Go Rightly podcast, um, Leaving Venice. And it just was a really fascinating ARG with 11 locations that they say, if you go to these locations, you'll be able to discover more about the Jeremy and Teresa psyche before they killed themselves. And then through your podcast, I've recently been getting into ARGs and The Situationists, and I was reading Lipstick Traces like as I heard that podcast. Oh, and then I'm a member of the Museum of Jurassic Technology, which is, we'll get back to that, but on the list of places that are mentioned on the blog post for the ARG. So it just, a lot of things within like an hour just were, made it seem like it, I had to look more into it. Lipstick Traces is a great book, by the way. I, I know I've mentioned it before on here, but again, if you haven't read it yet, please do by Grail Marcus. It's just fantastic. And uh, really about the best introduction to Dadaism that one could uh, potentially hope for. What about, if there are any details about the individual that was behind this website, they went by what, the name Theramy, right? Yes, they went by the name Theramy. I mean, there's who they presented themselves as was like, a friend of Teresa and Jeremy, 
but also they, they act like there's this mystery about their death and they want to look into it. But then they also say like, but, you know, Jeremy and Teresa were harassing some friends of mine and they, they kind of take both sides on it throughout this information that they keep saying they're getting from like, you know, someone who has a connection to Jeremy and Teresa on this website. There's some speculation I have. There's some speculation on the forums at the time where they find out that one of the posters there, C-Word, I, I saw people accusing her of maybe being um, Theremy. I also noticed just looking into it that the art critic Charlie Finch has a obituary type thing written for Jeremy and Teresa, and he titled it Theremy. And it's the only other mention of them being called Theremy on the internet other than that blog. And he never mentions the blog, which I found just interesting. If you're going to title it and name it after the blog, why not make a reference to where your title comes from? Unless it's like, you know, you're trying to, to the fact that you made this site or something. But that might be a stretch. Yeah, a few other things, too. This guy, Theremy, claimed that he knew Jeremy and Teresa why they were living in California and Venice, I believe it was. That's, I think, kind of a significant part of this when we get into this list here in just a second, because supposedly I think these were locations or something to that effect that they uh, were interested in visiting, but they're pretty much all centered around California, as we'll see here. But yeah, I do think that the the California locale uh, that this person purports to be from is important to the sort of places that were selected and some of the other references that are dropped and so forth, because it certainly ties into a lot of the hidden history of Los Angeles that I've been exploring on the Albacore series. So it's um, definitely fascinating, even though Blake and Duncan were, you know, their hearts were obviously much more closely connected to New York City. I mean, by most accounts, they really didn't enjoy their, their time in the LA area and didn't really associate with that region. They were certainly, I think, viewed themselves much more so as New Yorkers. Uh, so that's kind of another thing that it, uh, they would choose to sort of use California as this as a location. So, as I said before, the author insists that all the sites we're about to go to were related to the deaths of Blake and Duncan, though he's, as far as I know, never really clear, or she, I should add, how they, you know, got these this list of sites or anything to that effect, and they certainly give the impression at different times that they're not really that they think the sites were a kind of code that they themselves are trying to figure out as i said before most of them are in california so we're going to go through all of them now and trying to give our best in terms of interpreting why they were selected so first up is the chateau of Marmont. what have you turned up on this place sir Teresa Duncan, we know, would stay there a lot. She mentioned in an interview that when you're drunk in L.A., the only solution is to stay at the Chateau Marmont. She was friends with the owner of the hotel, Andre Velez. And I found an article about them attending this party for the release of Catholic School, which is like an art thing by this guy, Sante D'Souza. I really recommend people look at these pictures because it's just like schoolgirl sexuality. It's a very weird thing to be, in my mind, um, something floating around avant-garde art circles, but, you know, sexy pictures of girls in schoolgirl outfits more or less. 
Oh, that actually kind of makes uh, sense in terms of some of the allegations about Mammoth over the years. But before getting to that, here's a little bit of backdrop for this thing. So supposedly the hotel is modeled on the Chateau d'Ambos, I believe, in France, which in and of itself has a fascinating history. So this show, the Chateau is located in the commune of Amboise near the Loire River. It's also close to Alju, which plays heavily into the mythos around the Knights Templar. In fact, the original nine knights who founded the order almost all came from this particular region of France. Uh, you know, this is the one that had all the kind of Normans and stuff too in it. So, you know, there's that component as well. Anyway, the Knights Templar were basically the military arm of the Cistercian uh, Order, which uh, had its origins there as well. It had broken away from the Benedictian Order and so on. Another one of these mystery monastic orders that nobody ever talks about, though they seem to have done so much to mold contemporary history. But I digress. By the middle of the 15th century, the chateau had been greatly expanded. This led to its seizure by the French kings who used it as a residence at least up to the 17th century. One of these kings commissioned none other than Leonardo da Vinci to do work on the chateau during the early 16th century, and in point in fact he died there in 1519 and was buried near the chateau. Later residents included good old Catherine de Medici, the Italian Queen of France widely accused of participating in black masses, witchcraft, and sacrificial rites. Also who present there, in fact, who spent uh, part of her childhood there, was Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots, and the scion of the story, the Stuart dynasty. Again, did it all there while she was in exile. Uh, I'm not sure if this was you know, incorporated into the Da Vinci Code, but I'm sure at some point somebody in the whole Holy Blood, Holy Grail mythos is probably obsessed over this thing. As for the American version, the good old Chateau Mammont, it was loosely based on its French counterpart. It was completed, I believe, in 1928 or 29. It resides on the legendary Sunset Boulevard. While originally used as an apartment complex, it became an exclusive hotel for moneyed East Coasters and Hollywood types within the first decade of existence. John Belushi famously died there of a drug overdose in 1982. Some of the more storied guests have included John Jepp, Tim Burton, Courtney Love, Quentin Tarantino, and S. Thompson. It probably goes without saying, but... All these people have been accused of ritualistic murders, child sex trafficking, ritual abuse, and a lot of other things of that nature at various times. Country rocker Graham Parsons, a one-time member of the Birds, whose body was later burned in Joshua Tree National Park, lived there with his girlfriend in 1969. He was 23. She was 16. Throughout the 1960s, it was rumored orgies black masses and that kind of thing were common there in 1968 rodney akawa the so-called dating game killer abducted an eight-year-old girl from the hotel and was in the midst of effectively torturing her when authorities intervened and mercifully saved her that would be tv shapiro if i remember correctly that's uh, some other interesting stuff about this storied hotel in the L.A. area. 
going with the theme that uh, Teresa Duncan was obsessed with these child uh, sex trafficking networks and a lot of this other kind of stuff. It's interesting to see a lot of the allegations surrounding this particular hotel over the years. Ivanka Trump also interned for Andre Velez. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. The next one is quite fascinating as well. This would be the Museum of Jurassic Technology. So what is its story, sir? Yes, so it's a museum in LA. The person who's like arranging the exhibits is an artist named um, David Wilson. He's a MacArthur Grant winner. And it's pretty confounding what the place is. I think a pretty common like occurrence is you people go in there and then just like, they have no idea what they're looking at. It's stories, both real and um, fictionalized about historical figures, scientists and artists and natural history and space exploration. But then it also features art made by the artists in the story you're learning about. And it's all told in a very abstract way. And it blends fiction and reality. Some of the art made by like supposedly different people is obviously created by you know, the same art team that's building the stuff for the museum. It calls itself like a museum of oddities, and it's playing with the idea of what's real and what's fiction. It, does it have, uh, I can't remember if we had talked about this or not, but does it have a connection to um, the folks who did the Jejun Institute, by the way? Yes, it does. I don't know, like, exactly what the museum's involvement in the Jejun Institute ARG is, but in the documentary about it, the Institute, they pay tribute or pay homage to the Museum of Dress Technology. Um, that's actually how I initially found out about it was watching that documentary, which is like a half fictionalized documentary about the Jejun Institute ARG. The, the documentary is really bad, but it does draw a direct connection between that and the museum. Yeah, no, that's definitely a fascinating connection. Next up is the Center for Land Use Interpretation. So what's the story of this place, man? Yeah, so it's the building next door to the Museum of Jurassic Technology. So there's obviously a connection between those two organizations. The Museum of Jurassic Technology mentions the Center for Land Use Interpretation on their website. I do think it's probably run by different people. Also a very strange place. You walk inside of it and it seems like it's like a DMV or something. There's TVs all over the walls, just like small little monitors with PowerPoint deals or like slideshows playing of landmarks. And then they have all these printout flyers in there about different um, geographical locations across the United States. And it seems like it's diving into the more occult aspects of those locations, but not explicitly and not aesthetically at all, for sure. They have a lot of situationist literature within the Center for Land Use Interpretation, just like it's within, like, on the walls, they saw magazines and have some situationist stuff. Yeah, that's definitely interesting reading material for a center dedicated to land use. How about the Bunny Museum? Yes, so this one I know a little bit less about. I know it's a museum in East LA. It's a lady who has, she collects all different types of, but she got accused at one point on the internet of being Q adjacent because she had some Q stuff in her museum because she wants to include everything that has to do with bunnies, supposedly. I had not found a connection between her and Teresa and Jeremy as of yet, but 
I do think it's ironic that she would get tied up in an ARG, you know, again, however many years later for a completely unrelated reason. Yeah, I wasn't aware of the connections to Q, but that's very, very, very intriguing there. I just saw a thing where people were accusing her of being like Q adjacent and she's explicitly like, not about that. She was pretty upset when that happened, I think. So I don't want to, you know, continue that. Well, there is a weird thing, though, with that. So I'll get into that. Okay, so the Bunny Museum officially opened in 1998 in Pasadena, California, as you noted here. It's actually about this husband and wife duo, and then they later moved it to Altadena, I believe. Uh, So anyway, it was opened in 98, and by 1999, uh, the Guinness Book of World Records already acknowledged that it was the leader of bunny memorabilia in the entire world, bitches. So they already accomplished that very early in the game. Anyway, during the height of the Duncan Blake stuff, there was speculation the Bunny Museum was actually a reference to artist Ray Johnson. This was actually one of the things that ended up in the comments section in the uh, the Therame blog. So a celebrated documentary on him called How to Draw Bunnies had just been released in 2002. And I suspect something of Johnson's work is in the museum as he did apparently have quite a fondness for doing rabbits. Johnson is a huge figure in neo-Donaism and pop art. He was an early collaborator of Andy Warhol's. As has been often remarked upon, Theresa Duncan was obsessed with Warhol and pop art. It was a major component of the literature of the staircase. For our purposes here, the two really interesting things to bring up are Johnson's use of male art and the attempted assassination of Andy Warhol. Well, actually, I should say three things. Johnson's death is also important to all this, but we'll get to that in due course here. So anyway, Johnson started to randomly send out male art, often depicting cultural icons like Elvis and Marilyn Monroe during the late 1950s. This was in a way, kind of almost a proto-operation mindfuck. Between 1963 and 1965, he mailed out random pieces of a 12-page work entitled Book About Death. It was comprised of cryptic text and drawings and available until 1965 when the Village Voice also that year, and this is also the year that he stopped sending out random pages of it to people. So few people ever got the full 12 pages of the book. It was briefly published, I think, towards the end of the 60s, but was out of print by the early 70s and pretty much disappeared from the public at large until 2014. Uh, But this certainly comes off as the kind of thing that maybe a guy like Robert Anton Wilson would have been intrigued by. Uh, Certainly this was the whole era when he and guys like Kerry Thornley were really active in the zines and that kind of thing, certainly following them. Another interesting aspect about Mr. Johnson here, Mr. Ray Johnson, is Valerie Solanus's attempted assassination of Andy Warhol. Uh, This was in 1968. She used a gun that she had been storing at a collaborator of Johnson's in her apartment. And then on top of that, the same day Warhol was shot, Johnson was mugged at knife point in New York City. And then also two days later, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated, which allegedly led to Johnson's enhanced paranoia. He soon departed New York City and moved to an isolated residence in Long Island. 
which I believe is near Glen Cove. And this is also a really interesting place. It's ironically, I think, where the region where Thomas Pynchon's uh, family is from as well. Um, but this is, you know, definitely a lot of old money type families have resided in this particular area of Long Island before. And, um, you know, again, this is the same region where Roy Raiden was doing all those like S&M parties uh, with that sort of eyes wide shut-esque feel uh, in the late 70s, early 1980s. So there was a lot of, well, there's always been a lot of strange stuff with Long Island during this time frame that he'd relocated there, especially as is also the, I think the Amityville killings happened like towards the end of the decade and just a lot of other crazy stuff. Anyway, he remained on this whole area for the rest of his life, though his artistic output greatly diminished uh, after relocating there. Last thing that's very important for this, Ray Johnson committed suicide in 1995 by driving off a bridge in Long Island. And the thing about this is there was speculation at the time among his friends and fans that Johnson intended his suicide as a kind of performance art. There were numerous references to number 13, for instance, suicide, which was something that he was apparently obsessed with. And I'll give you guys a couple of examples of that. So it included, among other things, the date that he committed suicide on, which was January 13th, 1995. His age at the time was 67, which is 6 plus 7 equals 13. Uh, the room number of a motel he had checked in earlier in the day was 247. 2 plus 4 plus 7 equals 13, etc. I'll point out that 247 is actually a highly significant number as well in a lot of metaphysical circles. It's also divided by 2. It's uh, 23.5 and discordianism so yeah. there was just a lot of uh fascinating things like that with mr johnson's death there's also again the allusions to house in wonderland with the bunny museum it was rumored that Teresa duncan was working on a film called alice underground as far as i can tell we don't know if it was actually based on the Alice books, but the original title of the first one was Alice's Adventures Underground. And obviously, rabbits are a huge part of the whole Alice uh, storyline. And later, the white rabbit became a big part of stoner culture via Jefferson Airplane and all that good stuff. And also the famous sequence in Hunter Thompson's uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas involving uh, the song White Rabbit and a, uh, a bathtub and uh, what is it, a hairdryer or something like that. Anyway, it was eventually co-opted into conspiratainment wholesale via The Matrix. And now it's big with all the Q stuff, which is one of the reasons why I find it fascinating to see it appearing here in 07 always with the white rabbit and there's also kind of a reference in the same post that brings up the ray johnson stuff with a comment i should say about the wild hair and all this other stuff so an interesting connection to all of this to put it mildly her movie was uh, an adaptation of alice in wonderland where two um girls are kidnapped by a cult leader in the 1960s oh okay. funny too interesting interesting 
The next location up for consideration is Mount Low. And this place has a like a, pretty much all these places has a really interesting story. So what do you got on that, sir? Yeah, so for Mount Low, on a follow-up post, that same post that pointed to Ray Johnson and the Bunny Museum, it has a comment. A follow-up to the Mount Low is that there is a companion site located in the Mojave Desert, code word granddaughter. Thaddeus Lowe, who Mount Lowe was named after his granddaughter, had a flight dude ranch for test pilots located in the Mojave Desert, um, which is this is clearly a reference to. I can't fully connect what that has to do with Teresa and Jeremy, but I do know that her dude ranch was shut down by the Air Force because they wanted to use it to expand the base and she refused to sell, and it was then labeled a brothel, more or less, and soldiers were no longer able to attend. She, I think, like lost all her money, and then she ended up suing the Air Force and winning, but that's at least half of what they're referencing. It's at least what the granddaughter in the follow-up post is about. I'm not sure beyond that. Well, there was also a lot of interesting stuff about the founding of uh, Mount Low itself as well. I'm going to read here a little excerpt from The Great Southern Californian Island on the Land by Carrie McWilliams. This was uh, one of the major sources for uh, the Great Chinatown film, discussed at length in my Albacore, first installment of my Albacore series. From pages 148 and 149 in this uh, remarkable work, quote, the most fantastic troubadour of the period, however, was the scientist Thaddeus Sprisky Colin Courtelieu. Taking off from Cincinnati during the Civil War in one of the first balloon ascensions in America, Professor Lowe drifted far off his course and landed near Charleston, South Carolina, dressed in formal evening attire. A little puzzled about this curiously dressed man from Mars, the Confederates finally gave him a pass through their lines to the Union Army. On reaching Washington, he got President Lincoln interested in the idea of using balloons for observation work and spent the balance of the Civil War spying on the Confederate armies from the skies. Coming to California in 1888, he designed and built the Mount Low Railway, a cable line that ran from a point near Pasadena to the top of Mount Low. Once the line was constructed, Professor Rowe built two hotels on top of the mountain, the Chalet, which became the Alpine Inn, and the Echo Mountain House. Not satisfied with the grandiose achievement, he proposed to build still another hotel farther up the mountain and to establish an institute for the study of pure science on the nearby peak. The site for the proposed hotel, which was never built, would have had to be carved out of solid granite. He also designed a plan by which he could operate a swinging cable railway from the hotels on Mount Low across a vast gorge to the proposed hotel. His plans called for the excavation of the underground temple to surpass in grandeur and impressiveness the temples of the caves of the Elefante. These rich fancies were never realized for poor Professor Lowe got caught in the panic of 1893, 1893, but for the 25 years, the trip of a lifetime up Mount Lowe was a major tourist attraction. While the Institute of Pure Science was never realized, Lowe did build an astronomical observatory, which later became the present Mount Wilson Observatory, where important scientific discoveries had been recorded. 
A sadly neglected figure in the cultural history of the Legion, Lowe made one extremely important contribution. It seems fairly well authenticated that he worked on the first plans for the use of artificial ice for commercial purposes, notably for icing of refrigerator cars. In fact, he is supposed to have designed the first refrigerator car development of vast importance in region-producing perishable foods for shipments distant markets. So Lowe was definitely a genius, but one of the really fascinating things about all that is the fact that he basically invented aerial surveillance spycraft as well. I mean, you can kind of see this as like the uh, the modern day maybe precursor of the U-2 spy plane or something like that with his use of balloons during the Civil War. This was actually also the, the first aviation unit that low-headed that the U.S. military ever had. So it's interesting then that his granddaughter ended up later, um, you know, with that establishment near the what became the Edwards Air Force Base and her own sort of uh, struggles with the Air Force, even though her grandfather arguably created the Army Air Force, which the modern-day Air Force derived from. So that whole family is... Um, a fascinating subject to put it mildly and there's definitely a lot of different takes that you could get out of that and why it would be included let's move on to the next ones here the salvation mountain and the sultan sea they're actually listed as separate entities on the list but both of these locations are right next to each other so let's tackle them together i don't have much on these locations either um, salvation mountain is a kind of utopian slash artist colony that was established during the mid-1980s by a guy called leonard knight it's mostly known for its visionary art ideas really psychedelic uh the thing comes off kind of like a mini burning man which i thought was really intriguing especially since there's reference to Teresa duncan possibly going to burning man i believe uh that either therapy or somebody on the blog uh, for this makes so it's fascinating, as we'll see here, about that possible connection. But anyway, Knight was uh, later featured in the Sean Penn film, Into the Wild. He played himself in the movie. And given a lot of the allegations and rumors around Penn for years, it's interesting that he was a fan of Knight's, and that may be another reason why Salvation is referenced in this case. Again, it, one of the things I sort of picked up on with this blog is it seems like there's a certain milieu of actors and filmmakers that they're trying to bring into this i.e johnny depp sean penn tim burton uh, people that sort of were around that whole viper room crowd going back to the 90s which is really interesting given some of the stuff that's come out about some of these people over the years as for the sultan sea this was a popular resort community during the 1950s and the 1960s. However, the sea basically had gone dry by the, the 1970s. There had also been a pretty significant U.S. Navy base in this region as well for a time uh, where they did a lot of actually significant research, but it departed in the 70s as well along with the sea. Anyway, this, this led to kind of an environmental disaster. They even got poor Sony Bono out there to 
raise awareness about this like in 1993 and i think bill clinton eventually declared an emergency or something to that effect by the 90s it had mostly been abandoned by the communities that had been established there it's major about face i mean back in the 50s people like frank sinatra and the beach boys would go out there for the you know to play at the resorts and stuff it was really exclusive it was very trendy and it just basically you know became a huge ghost town area more or less it's rebounded though a little bit in the 21st century thanks in part to several documentaries that have been made in recent years about its decline but there were also some different artistic communes that uh sprung up in the region much like the salvation mountain one though i think that's the main one but again it's the same sort of you know sort of kind of like psychedelic trippy desert art and also maybe a bit of that kind of Burning Man vibe to it as well. Uh, my guess is that this, the inclusion of these two sites is possibly meant to push the notion that Duncan and Blake fake their deaths partly so that they could relocate to one of these sort of, you know, hipster artist communes. Uh, Salvation Mountain and Sultan Sea are not the only references to this kind of thing, as we'll see as we get kind of further into this. I will say, however, there is one other interesting possibility for the inclusion of the Sultan Sea reference, and that uh, revolves around the famous Cacophony Society, which originated from San Francisco. Uh, for those of you unaware, this was kind of an anarchistic performance art trope inspired by the Dada movement, culture jamming, all that good stuff. Uh, it was actually the inspiration for the film Fight Club. The author of uh, that particular novel, whose name escapes me at the moment, was a uh, part of the, uh, I think it was the Portland chapter of the Cacophony Society. So anyway, it originated in the San Francisco area. And it's interesting to note too, that it grew out of an earlier institution, a kind of hipster secret society known as the Suicide Club, which involved practical jokes uh, that could be rather dangerous as a means of performance art, which is quite interesting in light of the topics that we have been discussing here. Supposedly, the name for the Suicide Club came from a series of short stories that were written by Robert Louis Stevenson turned towards the uh, the end of the late 19th century, I believe. And they were collected together in a book called uh, The Suicide Club, naturally enough. Uh, this was popular with the original group of the Suicide Club. They were, you know, again, fueled by a lot of the usual suspects, Dadaism, surrealism. Some of their pranks were meant to kind of induce a state of synesthesia in the uh, the participants and those observing them. One thing, though, that I will say that's interesting is there actually were these real-life suicide clubs that also sprung up towards the end of the 19th century. Uh, though these were tied to the labor movement, the labor struggle, and typically they involved workers committing suicide as a means of protest against the corporations um would be maybe someone akin to the the buddhist monks who set themselves on fire during vietnam it was initially a very serious thing however there was another group of sort of practical jokers known as the white chapel club this was a journalist club uh, that was founded in chicago i think in 1889 as the name implies, it was closely linked to Jack the Ripper. Uh, in fact, I think Jack the Ripper was considered the unofficial grandmaster of the club. 
as a joke. <laughs> Though if you looked around their clubhouse, you would see it uh, littered with what were supposedly fake skulls and human skeletons and things of that nature. It was a, quite a, a dark sense of humor that the Whitechapel Club had. And one of their other uh, names was the Suicide Club. Apparently, one of the workers who was a member of a suicide club in Texas had gone through committing suicide as a protest, I think, when he was in the Chicago area, and the Whitechapel Club got a hold of his body and staged this rather elaborate public burning of his body on a funeral pyre. I suppose, in tribute to sort of um, the Indian custom. You know, you could probably look at this as one of the first instances of this sort of peculiar performance art that's grown out of these movements, as it was very much intended as this sort of mock pagan ceremony that, in a lot of ways, really just kind of belittled the statement that the guy was trying to make as well, uh, the guy from the actual Suicide Club, that is to say. So anyway, I've always wondered if that was maybe also an issue or possibly an influence on the San Francisco one that sprung up in 77, uh, that we'll probably never know. But again, if you know the history of some of this stuff, it's interesting to how this plays into the Jeremy Blank, uh, Theresa Duncan thing uh, as well. So anyway, um, the Suicide Club shut down around 1982 after I believe the founder had died. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was related to one of the pranks or not, but uh, I do believe he died at a fairly young age. And anyway, that uh, led to the creation of the, the Cacophony Society in uh, 1986. And like the Suicide Club, it was originally just based out of San Francisco. They eventually ended up with a couple of chapters across the country, mostly in the West Coast. In fact, I think they were all basically in the West Coast. As I said before, there was one in Portland. Seattle had one. But for our purposes here, uh, Los Angeles had a chapter that was started in 1991. And they did some interesting stuff. Uh, I should go uh, point out to going back to the Suicide Club, the San Francisco one that had inspired uh, the Cacophony uh, Society. Uh, one thing that both of these groups really put a lot of emphasis on was urban exploration, you know, kind of trying to find a lot of these these weird sites and what have you, um, you know, that were in major cities, but sort of out of the way. And I noted that Salvation Mountain uh, was actually a common location that it would seem that the uh, the Los Angeles chapter of the Cacophony Society would go to. So I'm wondering if they also have maybe some additional ones at the whole Salton Sea area and what have you as well. In fact, I think they even do, you know, like some festivals like LATX and maybe even the Marathon Zombie Shot Stop or something like that at the uh, Salvation Mountain location. So it seems like there's a link to some of these artistic communities that grew up there. Um, especially also to the, the Burning Man thing. I've noted as well that a lot of the people involved with first the uh, the San Francisco Suicide Club and then later the Cacophony Society, the different chapters, many of them would also play a role in establishing Burning Man. What I can tell was Salt and Sea Salvation Mountain. There does seem to be a certain overlap with that whole style of artwork that's present there and at Burning Man. So again, I also think that including Salvation Mountain and Salt and Sea, in addition to references to these utopias, it's also possibly 
an allusion to these, you know, just really fantastical performance art movements that sometimes have um, have been very serious how they went about conducting their art. Our next spot up for consideration is the Beat Hotel. One thing that immediately jumps out about this location is it's, I think, the only one not in California. So what is your take on it, sir? The comment from the blog about Burning Man was that there was an altar at Burning Man set up in the, quote, Temple of Forgiveness, where they were burning emails that Teresa had sent her friends, accusing them of stalking her, pretty much. The Beat Hotel is in France. It is the only location yet that's not in Southern California, which is very interesting, but it still is pointing to the same sort of postmodern artistic ideas. It is where William Burroughs discovered the cut-up technique, where he was taught by his artistic collaborator, whose name I'm, I'm blanking on right now, but it's when he was taught the cut-up technique, which is, becomes very central to you know his writing and the CCRU and like all of these sort of reality-bending art secret organizations. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that he would have come up with that in France. It's A lot of it actually went back to the surrealist movement and this kind of game that they used to play called the Exquisite Corpse, which inspired so many of the, um, you know, the paintings and the artworks of uh, human physiology uh, rearranged in various poses and so forth. That was the OG cut-up. At the cut-up technique, kind of in the context of ARGs. Yeah, it's a huge Um, part of it. Yeah, it's a huge influence on it, clearly. Next up is Noah Purifoy's place in good old Joshua Tree. Typically, there's a bit of a story with anything connected with Joshua Tree. So Noah Purifoy was an African-American visual artist. He's most well known for work that he has done after the 1965 Watts riots. His most famous work in that regard was known as 66 Signs of Neon. Keep that in mind for one of the latter locations that we would get to. This whole series was inspired by the Watts uh, uprising, riots, depending upon your point of view. Later, he relocated to Joshua Tree, which is where he established the museum that is being referenced here. So obviously, Joshua Tree has a lot of metaphysical significance. It was also, ironically, where Graham Parsons' body was burned after he had died. As uh, I had mentioned earlier, Parsons was one of the more infamous guests at the Chateau Mamont. And then, of course, he ended up having his corpse stolen uh, from the morgue by his, I think it was his roadie, if I remember correctly. And then it was brought out to Joshua Tree, where there was some kind of ritual performed, and it was uh, ceremonially burned. And eventually it was made into a, I suppose, actually surprisingly halfway decent film starring Johnny Knoxville. I think that might have been maybe another reason why this was brought up to you know, possibly bring the Joshua Tree and maybe the Graham Parsons story into this again as well. But also, this is another instance of an isolated artist compound. Again, this is a guy who specializes in visual arts to boot. It's, you know, again, a little trippy. It kind of, again, this utopian notion of the artist going into an almost Walden Pond-like scenario where they're just kind of out there in the wild doing their thing uh, away from the hassle of the day-to-day world. So the next one is the defunct Lana Del Rio. This is an interesting one. 
And it plays into my Albacore series here, especially, again, the Chinatown episode. That movie, in turn, is centered around L.A.'s water wars from the early 20th century. A group of wealthy speculators, many linked to the good old Tudor Club of Avalon on the nearby Santa Catalina Island, conspired to divert water from Owens Valley to the San Fernando Valley in a bid to bring the region into Los Angeles proper. At the forefront of these efforts were L.A. Times founder Harrison Gray Otis and his son-in-law, L.A. Times editor-in-chief and future owner Harry Chandler. He's also a member of the Bohemian Grove in San Francisco, probably the Tuna Club, a lot of these other curious organizations of that nature. This is all unfolding against the backdrop of major labor uprisings in Los Angeles proper. In fact, the L.A. Times building was bombed in 1910, possibly by the McNamara brothers, trade unionists, in retaliation for Otis's schemes and general anti-labor stance. So into this maelstrom stepped a figure known as Job Harriman. And no, guys, from what I can tell, he is not a member of the famous Harriman family that's connected to Skull and Bones and a lot of other VIP organizations. He at least as far as I can tell, is not of that branch of the family or any way connected to them. He was an early follower of Karl Marx and an avowed socialist. Harriman had at one point been a minister and then later an attorney for the labor movement. But his real passion by the late 1890s was politics. He ran for the governorship of California in the Socialist Labor Party ticket in 1898 and for the vice presidency of the entire nation on the Social Democratic Party of America in 1900. In 1911, he actually won the California primary for the SDP, that would be the Socialist Democratic Party of America. He crushed the Democratic candidate, William Mushet, and he was polling almost 10% above his closest rival, the Republican incumbent, George Alexander. But before the general election was held, the McNamara brothers, whom Harriman had been representing and whose innocence he appeared to genuinely believe in, suddenly copped the guilty plea without his knowledge. This destroyed Harriman's credibility in the eyes of the voters, and he ended up losing the general election. And this is what spurred the utopian community of Mono del Rio that he created shortly thereafter. I'm going to return now to good old Southern Californian Island on the land by Mr. Kerry McWilliams, because he has got some great stuff in here about this commune. So starting here at page 284, in the name of the Lana Del Rio Company, formed under the laws of Nevada, with a capitalization of $2 million, Harriman acquired a tract of land in the Antelope Valley, 90 miles by road from Los Angeles, located near the mouth of the Big Rock Canyon, which had been known to the Spanish as Rio de Lana. The tract had originally been laid out as a temperance colony by the Mexico Land and Water Company. There, the temperance advocates had formed an irrigation improvement district, issued bonds, and constructed a mile-long tunnel for water. Later, the project had been abandoned when the company defaulted under the bond issue. Buying up these bonds for a nominal sum, Harriman was able to secure control of the entire tract of the Lano del Rio Company. In May 1914, the first group of five families moved to the project. 
Harriman's conception of the structure of this utopian community is considered of historical interest and importance. He had decided to use the private corporation as the legal instrument by which the colony was to be established. Although a private corporation, the Lano del Rio Company, was in effect a collective farm, a workers' Soviet colonists purchased stock in the company received back an agreement from the corporation to employ them at wages of four dollars a day payable out of the net earnings since only settlers were permitted to purchase stock it followed that they would also own all the assets of the company while settlers were eventually drawn from into different localities the original colonists were persons who had long been associated with harriman and the socialist labor movement in los angeles among these pioneer colonists were frankie wolf editor of the labor paper he made a motion picture about the tom mooney case in 1916 entitled from dust till dawn in which harriman and clarence darrow appeared uh, also included W.A. Engel, chairman of the Central Labor Council of Los Angeles, and Frank McMahon, who had formerly been an official bricklayers union representative. Today, Antelope Valley is a prosperous farming community in which alfalfa is raised for the dairy farms of Los Angeles, but in 1914, it was a desert. On this desert, the Lano colonists labored with an incredible tenacity to demonstrate the workability of the socialist ideal. On the project, they constructed barns and silos, an office building, a community of homes, a cannery, two hotels, and many other structures. Completing the tunnel for water, they removed the Joshua trees, sagebrush, and greasewood of the desert, planted 240 acres of alfalfa, 200 acres of orchard crops, and 100 acres of garden produce. They lined the irrigation ditches with cobblestone, drew up plans for construction of a sawmill, and took out a permit to cut the timber in the mountains. Functioning as part of the project were a print shop, a shoe repair shop, a laundry, a clothes cleaning establishment, a warehouse, a rug making shop, a swimming pool, an art studio, a library, and this is great, a rabbit farm. Here at Lano was established one of the first Mansordia schools in California. In 1917, the cannery produced two carloads of canned tomatoes. During the time the project was in existence, over 2,000 people visited Alano annually. One of these visitors reported that the social life of the colony, quote, possessed a charm which had its members when the hardship of subjugating the desert nearly overwhelmed them. While Southern California has long been noted for the number of privately controlled cooperative enterprises, Lano represented the first real production cooperative in the region, and as such, it attracted intense local interest and widespread national comment. On May Day, the colonists, dressed in their best clothes, marched through the streets of the settlement with their own band and a red flag flying at the head of the parade. If you have two loaves of bread, they said, sell one and buy a grain of feed for your soul. Considering the background of the project, Harriman's insistence on providing the feasibility of socialism cannot be dismissed as quotoxic. The Soviet Union was not in existence in 1914. Here in the desert of Southern California, on the eve of the First World War, 
he had determined to build an island of socialism, not only to establish the soundness of the socialist ideal, but to wipe out the memory of his disastrous defeat. The significance of the experiment was quickly recognized by its opponents. From the beginning, the Lano Project was invested with an army of stool pensions, informers, and agent provocateurs. Every difference of opinion which arose among the colonists was fanned into a flame by these internal enemies. Sensational news stories in Los Angeles press heralded each squabble in the project as certain proof of the unsoundness of this utopia on the desert. With colonists being encouraged by outside elements to file lawsuits against the company, the court records were soon littered with litigation. Harriman, the guiding intelligence of the project, was forced to spend most of his time in court defending one or another of the dozens of trumped-up lawsuits filed against the company. Despite these difficulties, however, the project would probably have survived had it not been for the fact that a survey made in 1917 indicated that the water supply, when fully developed, would not be sufficient to meet the growing requirements of the colony. In 1917, Harriman made a trip to Louisiana, secured an option on 20,000 acres of cutover timberland, and determined to move the entire colony to New Lotto. In December 1917, Lano del Rio was abandoned, and in a special train, the remaining colonists left for their new home in Louisiana. From 1917 to date, they have struggled to maintain themselves in their new location, where, with characteristic energy, they have built still another community, with stores, hotels, homes, and a lumber mill. While a receiver was appointed for the project some years ago, some of the original colonists are still living on the property. The story of these colonists, who, for over a quarter of a century, have struggled to establish the feasibility of the socialist ideal is one of the moving episodes in the history of the social movements in America. Over the years, I have come to know some of the colonists who eventually abandoned New Lano and returned to Los Angeles. Although a few of them are rather disillusioned, the enthusiasm most of them had has not abated. They still speak of those early days at Lano in the desert with an elation which has survived through the years. Certain of these colonists have been active leaders in the self-help cooperative movement in Southern California. A former Lano colonist, Walter Millsap, founded the United Cooperative Industries in Los Angeles in 1923. This is interesting on a couple of levels. First, it's another instance of this sort of utopian community that was established, and again, kind of incidentally, in a desert as well, which I find to be interesting. Uh, but also the fact that it was sabotaged by all these agent provocateurs and so forth, which I thought was fascinating in light of some of the, the later claims about the Scientologists that they made and the gang stalking and that kind of thing, because it seems like Job Harriman did experience this kind of harassment from a lot of the figures connected to Otis and the people around the LA Times and the broader, you know, kind of tuna club of Avalon milieu that was present and really dominated Los Angeles during this particular era. This is the decade or so after the whole water wars thing that you see shown in Chinatown, though the time frame depicted in Chinatown is different than when it actually happened. Another really fascinating choice that they would use for this particular history that it has. So how about good old Aztec Motel? 
This is the last location that was listed, and incidentally, it's off the storied Route 66. That alone really perked my interest. So what do you got for us on that one, sir? It's actually called the Aztec Hotel, but they do reference, they call it the Aztec Motel on the blogs. I was confused about that for a second. It's in Monrova. It's on historic Route 66. On the blog, they found the connection that Teresa on Wit of the Staircase got into an argument with someone in the comments, not really an argument, a discussion about postmodern art and its value, to which she posted this article by Eric Davis, which is called The Alchemy of Trash, which is about West Coast spiritual art. And he talks about the Aztec Hotel in it specifically. That article starts with a quote from Robert Duncan, who's an HD Doolittle disciple, which is just very interesting. It was built by Robert Stacy Judd, who's a, a British guy who came to California. He built two buildings before he built the Aztec Hotel in the area. One was a Masonic Lodge. He was friends with Manly P. Hall and a member of the Philosophical Research Society. And he said his reason for building this building in the, the Maya architecture style in the San Gabriel Valley was because, quote, bringing the Mayan architectural style to the West Coast would tap into a mighty spiritual source. So that was his reason for building it in the first place. It turned into a brothel and a speakeasy. It's now closed. And I think that the space is actually currently available for lease. Another, another building with a very interesting history, for sure. Yes, absolutely. Of course, the Mayan revival style was really popularized by the Wright family. Uh, both Frank Lloyd Wright uh, and his son Lloyd Wright, and they did uh, quite a bit of this in the Southern California area and especially around the L.A. region specifically. So, yeah, I mean, if you, again, listen to my Albert Course series, you know, I get a lot into um, some of Wright's different works and so forth. So I, I thought that was fascinating that they would use this particular instance of the Mayan revival style, even though it wasn't, uh, in this case, done by the Wright family. Still, you know, was very much in keeping with the concepts that they really uh, rather popularized with it. So, yeah, and then also the connections with, obviously, Route 66, which, you know, has so much uh, speculation on it and conspiracy culture and then it's also interesting because i mean it ties in later to some of the you know equally curious and um, speculated upon deaths such as tracy twyman especially isaac cappy's alleged suicide in arizona was also near another spot for the old historic route 66 and uh, tracy twyman had also been reporting instances of uh, harassment from an individual that was close to that particular region as well uh, it was belmont arizona by the way is the community that i'm thinking of which is near flagstaff arizona and it's claimed that this was actually the last uh, settlement along historic route 66 before you got to the grand canyon it's an interesting place. It was featured in uh, the 1969 film Easy Rider, ironically. This is uh, where Cappy allegedly committed suicide, which again has been at the site of a lot of speculation whether he faked his death. Uh, it was also tied into some of the mythos around Tracy Twyman. And I should point out too, Isaac Cappy also had the the close links to the QAnon movement uh, shortly before his suicide as well. In light of 
things that have happened uh, in the years since the Teresa Duncan and Jeremy Blake suicides. It's uh, interesting that you see this early reference to Route 66 and these particular suicides here. So again, this is just another, <laughs> for lack of a better term, mindfuck that you find uh, connected with all of this. And on that note, there's a few other mind fucks that I wanted to get into here before we wrap up. Besides these locations, there are two other really intriguing references in a particular post uh, that we've been using throughout this as a, a guide map, I suppose. One is the late 1960s counterculture publication, Tuesday's Child, which has enjoyed a bit of resurgence in recent years. So what's up with all that, sir? Tuesday's Child is a, a magazine that was running in the late 60s and early 70s in LA. I think there's two runs of a couple different issues in each one. It's a very interesting magazine because it's like filled with a guided seance by Aleister Crowley and a bunch of other new age imagery and sigils and how to do magic. But then it also has parapolitics stuff and a lot of Illuminati and Discordian imagery. It was, I think, the first mention of the CIA connection to Charles Manson. It was used as a source by Tim O'Neill when he wrote Chaos. So it's a, it's a very interesting magazine because it definitely has some real history in it, but it's also pretty clearly a Discordian product. Curious that they were referencing it back in this particular era because nobody really knew Tuesday's Child around 07 when these references to it started to appear. Even though I think one of the founders of them, what the LA Free Press, if I remember correctly. So uh, a few of the people who set it up had done some, you know, other underground publications that had become fairly successful, but this was always a rather obscure one. So to wrap up, we've already talked a bit about her before, but uh, the actress Tuesday Weld is brought up also. She's a really interesting one to show up here. Do you have anything else you want to uh, get into with her? Well, Teresa was a huge fan of Tuesday Weld. Her dog was named after her, her dog Tuesday. She committed suicide on a Tuesday, and Jeremy committed suicide seven days later also on a Tuesday. And then there's the reference to the Tuesday's Child magazine on the blogs, which she was into LA New Age conspiracy stuff herself, so I think she would have known about it. Oh, yeah. Also, the Tuesday's Child they're talking about on the blog, interestingly enough, it's mentioned one time before they call it Tuesday's Child, and they just say it's a zine about Tuesday Weld. And what they're describing is not anywhere in any Tuesday's Child. They then describe another one that also doesn't exist in Tuesday's Child, but call it that. So the reference they're making is not to the actual Tuesday's Child zine. It's to a fictional thing that they named it, which I find very interesting because they were clearly pointing to maybe not a fictional thing, maybe some off thing that they said exists, but they're talking about like a, a one-off print, not the actual thing that was in circulation, but they did use the name, the real thing. Yeah. And there's a lot of weird stuff about Tuesday Weld. I know you had already talked about that with Jeff Turner. And then um, of course, Adam Go Rightly wrote the, uh, the famous article about her too from some of the stuff that he was told by Turner about how she had effectively been like an Illuminati high priestess or something until like 92 when she was forced to step down and the product of an intergenerational witch's cult and all this other kind of thing. Now, Tuesday World did come uh, from a very prominent East Coast family. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, 
I covered obviously the uh, the Society of Cincinnati a lot recently on the farm, and it seems like one of the distant members of the Weld family had uh, married Lars Anderson, who is who dedicated the current headquarters that the society has in Washington D.C. But it was his wife, this woman from the Weld family, who had most of the money and who had purchased this residency uh, and uh, had given it to the society upon her death and her husband's death and it's a very impressive structure so they have some of these they i mean again for those of you unaware this is cincinnati's hereditary organization uh by and large so most likely she would have been part of one of these um revolutionary families going way back unless uh it was simply an honorary membership but i've not been able to determine that yet but regardless i mean this was the sort of family line that she did come from she occasionally made some curious comments i know uh originally kubrick had wanted her to star as the title character in lolita she had passed on the role allegedly because she already had lived as lolita at least from what she had said during this time this would have been the early 60s when she was still a teenager and she also passed on a lot of other big parts i think most notably rosemary's baby with roman polanski and a few others which she later claimed she had not taken part in these films because she knew they were going to be really big hits and she didn't want the added celebrity or something to that effect so that was very strange it is an odd reference and the other thing that's interesting about this too is it almost inevitably brings one back to jeff turner because he's the one who's really put out a lot of this you know kind of illuminati stuff centered around tuesday weld for a lot of years but the thing about turner that's interesting was that he was based out of santa cruz for a lot of years and especially during like the 80s early 90s this was like around the time he was also engaged in stalking tiffany was like an actress model that he also became obsessed with and i bring up the santa cruz connection because it was during this time frame the late 80s uh, is when the formless ocean group uh, was meeting in the santa cruz era and this included a lot of discordian types like joseph Metheny, along with uh, people like robert anton wilson and the mckenna brothers um but also nick herbert and hakeem bay and there's a lot of theories that this is what the OG Ongs had, the, what is generally acknowledged as the first official alternate reality game grew out of. These guys were all active in that region along the same time that Turner was making a lot of these allegations. And I believe Jeff Hall, who did the Jejun Institute, might have been living in Santa Cruz area around this time as well. For those of you who haven't seen the Jejun Institute, it's kind of centered around this girl who he had supposedly known who died in 1988 which is also the year that Ong's hat was launched on, who had come up with this whole notion of dispatches from elsewhere and this kind of weird stuff. I think she had also supposedly died in Santa Cruz in 1988. So it's a fascinating thing. It's, you know, again, this is sort of like the origins of where the alternate reality game and the kind of community around it came from. Turner was also active in these circles. And again, this kind of stuff shows up later in the Duncan. And, well, I shouldn't say, I don't know if Turner was active in these circles, but certainly Discordians later um, showed an interest. 
in his theories, to put it mildly. So there is a lot of strange stuff about that, uh, and specifically the location. When you sort of look at, again, how some of the stuff is played out with uh, Teresa Duncan and Jeremy Blake. Do you have anything here to add before we uh, sign off, sir? What I find really interesting in this story is Teresa's, her blog, Wit of the Staircase, two of the main things that it's dedicated to are her paranoia about the deep state sex traffic in Hollywood. And in an interview that she's asked about what's the best book about LA, she says crying on lot 49. She's very into Penchon and all of these things. But then it also seems like that is the circle that she herself associated with to some degree. She was into postmodern art herself. So the Theramy blog is playing with what's real and what's not to some degree. But then Teresa herself was interested in all of these artists who faked their suicide. Before she killed herself, she was definitely already playing some sort of game on her blog. And it's just, it's really interesting how these things can compound on one another. I also, as I went to one of these locations, I just kind of thought about the internet as magic and like the idea of a curse. Over 10 years after this blog post was written, I'm showing up at someone's front door, like knocking somewhat loud on the door. I caught myself being wrapped up in someone else's spell to a degree, and I found it very fascinating. And then to make those connections to Q. I also think if you look at the Theramy blog, it's very interesting because the way she positions herself, um, Theramy is like, oh, I'm a friend of Teresa and Jeremy, sort of, but I won't tell you how. And then like the level of esotericism in her posts, you can see it sort of die out. And then you can see if you like look at QAnon, they've solved that problem to a degree where it's like, oh, I can't tell you who I am because I'm undercover. You can just kind of see the skill has become more sophisticated since this since the early days. And, and it's very, it's very interesting. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And it's, you know, something that uh probably have you back here at some point in the near future that we can build upon because there's you know this is really only scratching the surface there's a lot of other incredible things to get into and i mean i kind of think at the forefront of it is you know whether or not she was legitimately trying to expose uh, like sex trafficking or something like that or whether she was using conspiracy culture as a kind of postmodern art for this type of thing uh you know, this is another aspect of this that is so intriguing, especially in light of things that have unfolded throughout the 21st century since this has uh, happened, these suicides, that is to say. Mm-hmm. On that note, I believe we will sign off for now. This has been a fantastic outing. And uh, again, I hope you guys will give this a lot of consideration because there are some important concepts that we have unfolded in here. Thank you so much for listening and your support. And with that, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blues got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the go Jay. You were ready. My people there, they feeling me. Download skin, roll more characters than Stephen King. To quarry y'all, I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my 
my wiki up, stuck down in the stick. Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what. Put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big around. Come on, mama, jump down. Turn around, do it for me. Stick it out. Say one, two, three, Geronimo. Jump, baby, we gotta go. Hands tied, blindfold. Jump into that battle zone. I said it's time to get the fuck out. Cause they done let the wolves out. Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo Never getting used to it Got bales of weed and catapults With Santa wet diffused in it Shoot it over the castle wall The Migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught a realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy With people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ Talking about that BMC We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy, the Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs, officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway, Bisbee lives on crazy checks, BP on that fast pay, I sing my hoodie blues, y'all, I don't make the rules. Y'all just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies If great white father don't make payroll Forget about your maypole It's just the one thing That ain't too clear I said people always bitching About the government here But that war administration's Our whole civilization, what? What? 